0: Hello and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's working group on national security,
1: technology, and law. In this episode, Task Force co-chair and Brookings Institution senior fellow Ben Wittes interviews Stephen Budiansky on his new book, Code Warriors, NSA's Code Breakers and the Secret Intelligence War Against the Soviet Union. It was recorded on July 13th, 2016.
0: Uh, So I I would be remiss if I did not take the opportunity of uh, introducing Steve Budiansky uh, in front of this audience, which is uniquely positioned (coughs) to understand this story, uh, to tell it. Uh, Steve, I met Steve a number of years ago because he'd written uh, a a book that I really recommend to you all, that is uh, a naval history of the War of 1812, Uh, which is one of the most remarkable uh, narrative uh, uh, military histories of anything I've ever read. Uh, But it contains uh, (laughs) this uh, brief discussion of uh, a law that I'd never heard of, which um, uh, was called the Torpedo Act. Um, And uh, the Torpedo Act, if you ever doubt that the United States was once a state sponsor of terrorism, I encourage you to check out Steve's earlier book, uh, uh, um, which uh, details a law that Congress passed taking out a bounty on British ships to any person who happened to be able to take one out. And the sort of mom and pop rowboat operations with barrels of explosives that resulted and you, uh, it really, actually, jokes aside, taught me uh, that uh, some, of our, some of what we think of as absolute uh, moral norms in warfare really are situational. Um, and the British response to it was very similar to sort of the appalled response that we have to sort of Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS. Um, it's a pleasure uh, to bring Steve here. Uh, his book... Um, uh, new book code Warriors uh, is as as you guys know from the announcement on the uh, on, on the confrontation between NSA and the Soviet Union over a very long period of time. so I want to just start with a kind of uh, giving a sense of the scale and scope of the book. This is an incredibly dense and period of book over that covers a very long period of time so Give us a sense of where the story here starts and where it ends and what what the material that
1: you're covering is. Okay, Well, it starts in the midst of World War II when NSA's predecessor organizations certainly had their hands full attempting to break the Japanese Army and Navy codes. And there was even an argument at the time by William Friedman, the great dean of American cryptology, the man who kept America's cryptologic capability going between the two world wars. He said, we are so overwhelmed trying to keep up with the Japanese army problem. We now have this very good relationship with the British code breakers at Bletchley Park. The British are much better at diplomatic codes than we are. So let's just give the entire diplomatic problem to the British. They'll share the results with us and we'll concentrate on winning the war. And interestingly, echoes of today still, his superiors at the Army Security Agency, as it was then, said, nothing doing. We're going to do everything. And amongst the everything they were going to do was attempt to break the codes of the Soviet Union, at that time an ally of the United States. Churchill, interestingly, had ordered uh, the government code and cipher school, the British code breakers, uh, to stop even collecting Soviet traffic. But um, the British liaison at Arlington Hall, which was the Army's U.S. Army's code-breaking headquarters, uh, reported back to London. I think it was in '42. He said, "I've picked up a few hints. The Americans are still collecting Russian radio traffic, and sooner or later they're going to try to break it because they don't trust the Russians farther than they can throw a steam shovel." And he was right. And This incredibly secret, even within the secret of the code-breaking operations program, was started to attempt to break Russian diplomatic traffic. Um, In the early post-war years, NSA's still predecessor agencies scored some pretty significant successes in breaking Russian teleprinter codes, other military uh, code machines, In 1948, this event known colloquially as Black Friday occurred when suddenly across the board change in all Russian code systems took place. It was such an alarming development that there was even speculation in London and Washington that this itself was an indication of an imminent Soviet military attack on the West. Uh, We later found out it was a result of a spy at Arlington Hall who had uh, alerted the Russians to the insecurity of their codes. The story from there is of NSA's growth as an organization um, becoming uh, from its sort of wartime, daring-do, improvisational roots to becoming this large bureaucracy, in many ways increasingly isolated not only from the norms of the larger civilization around it, but from the academic world, from advances in high-level mathematics. Um, And um, throughout the 50s and 60s, the story is largely one of technical failures, at least in high-level cryptanalysis, but nonetheless some remarkable successes in using signals intelligence to provide the only source of key information about what was going on inside the Soviet Union, including providing probably the only credible source of warnings of a Soviet imminent nuclear attack until real-time spy satellites emerged in the 70s and 80s. So it's really a story of the growth of an institution, the people, the technology, the bureaucratic and presidential politics in which it took place.
0: So when we hear the words NSA today, or the letters NSA, it's almost like it's a word, um, people immediately think of Edward Snowden, they immediately think of... Contemporary right. disputes about uh, signals intelligence in interaction with, uh, you know, with modern surveillance law and and yep. civil liberties expectations and norms. That is not what this book is about, but it's not unrelated to no, that either. No, no, so, I, so yeah. like, talk about where the book, where where your story
1: ends. Well, it ends with the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> and what
0: and what the relationship is that between the story that you're yep. telling and the story that everyone thinks about when they hear the name of the agency. Well, I do
1: think the current relevance of this story of NSA's origins and growth in the Cold War is that these institutional cultures, the habits of mind, go right back to NSA's origins and even pre-origins in World War II. The imperative to get everything. One of the most striking memoranda that I read in the course of my research was written in 1942 by the head of either, I can't remember now whether it was the Army or Navy's code breakers. And he said, our job is to paint as complete a picture as we can. um, to get as close as humanly possible to intercepting every single radio transmission in the world, deciphering it, translating it, of all those arrayed with us and against us. Um, that certainly has echoes uh, that come go through to today. The I think the pressing, a uh, maximalist interpretation of the legal authority you see again in World War II and the or I should say the immediate. Uh, Uh, post-war years where you have the uh, lawyers for the Army and Navy arguing, well, although wartime censorship has ended, uh, the president has inherent authority to conduct foreign relations and that means we can continue what we did under wartime censorship, which was to send someone every single day to RCA and the other cable companies and say, please give us a copy of every international telegram you sent or received in the last 24 hours, which they continued doing up until uh, the the Watergate uh, uh, hearings exposed that. Um, You also, I think, see the origins of a certain kind of hermetically sealed culture. I mean, secrecy is to me the dimension that isn't talked enough about in the current controversy. We, We hear so much about privacy versus national security. But, you know, secrecy is an evil in itself, which people, I think, don't recognize enough. It's often a necessary evil in national security. I'd be the last person to deny that. But it it exacts a toll. It isolates an organization from the consequences of its actions, from um, responsibility for its errors, for improving itself. In NSA's case, I think you can really trace through the 50s and 60s their isolation from the academic world of higher mathematics which uh... seriously delayed the breakthrough which i think finally came around nineteen seventy nine when at last they were able to break some of these high-level and previously impenetrable soviet codes so uh... i think there's uh... definitely (coughs) historical roots to the current controversies Mm -hmm. we've been hearing so much about
0: all right so before we Deal more with the substance of the book. I, I want to just take a moment to talk about how you report a book like this. <laughs> right. So this is not an area. It was easy, <laughs> I mean, right? Um, it's not an area where you can go interview. Not really a, a whole lot of people. Yeah. Most of the relevant, many of the relevant actors are dead. They wouldn't talk to you if they were alive. Right. Um, yeah. and, um, and some of the you know, when you go through the notes, there's a lot of material that's clearly been declassified. Yeah. Uh, what's, uh, talk to us about the source base okay, sure. for the book. How, how do you go about yeah. doing a history yeah. of, of NSA's right. confrontation <clears throat> with the Soviets? Well, in
1: 1999, I wrote a book called Battle of Wits, which was about code breaking in World War II. And at that time, NSA had just uh, begun an unprecedented for them at that time Uh, era of openness about historical materials, at least regarding World War II. They had turned over to the National Archives over a million pages of almost entirely unredacted documents, by the way, from the World War II period. And many of the players were alive then from World War II and they were thrilled to at last be given the green light to be able to talk about their accomplishments in breaking the Japanese and German codes. And to go into considerable technical detail about the, the, the remarkable scientific story behind this. So, I was at that time able to talk to a lot of people. When I ran into questions, I could say, you know, I got this document, I don't understand it, and they'd explain it to me. Um, it's obviously a very different situation now in the post Snowden world, as NSA refers to this era on Earth for all of us. And um, uh, I made a few efforts to talk to people and nobody's willing to say anything even about things that happened 70 years ago. There are documents that have been and are continuing to be released in NSA's desultory declassification process. And there's actually a fair bit out there. Most as you would expect is probably from before, there's, I should say there's a lot more from before 1960 than there is for the later period. NSA's history, people have done some selective releases of documents about particular events, the Korean War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. But even there, of course, it's an exercise in enormous frustration. There was one, I saw a a citation of an oral history they had done with Milt Zaslow, who played a key role in the intelligence which pointed to the Chinese imminent intervention in the Korean War. He also played a significant part in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So as part of the Cuban Missile Crisis release, I use the term advisedly, NSA had declassified and released his oral history and I said, wow, this is going to be great. And of course you have to download these as PDFs individually from the NSA website. God knows what else I was downloading at the same time from NSA's <laughs> website. But, um, and um, so the first page is completely redacted. It's a 64 page document. The second page is completely redacted. I start flipping through. Page 32 there was one sentence and I think on page 33 there was another sentence and then the rest of the document was entirely redacted. And, you know, this is what you're typically dealing with. It's like sometimes, you know, when it's like every other word cut out, you feel like you're, you know, doing a New York Times crossword puzzle developed by some demented version of Will Shorts or something. But it was, um, you know, so it's, it, it is very frustrating. But as I say, there's new material being released all the time. You can often combine bits and pieces of things. Here's a good example. I really wanted to continue the story into the immediate post-war era of how these guys did the work. I've always been fascinated by the intersection of science and warfare. In fact when I wrote Battle of Wits I had really been inspired by reading Richard Rhodes' book on the making of the atomic bomb which really told the story as it unfolded at the time. And I thought, you know, there have been these bits and pieces about code breaking in World War II, but I wanted to know what was the work like? Who were these people? How did they do it? How did they interact? What were the working conditions like, you know? And um, so for the immediate post-war era, when there was all of this work going on about these Russian cipher machines... Um, NSA still refuses to declassify details about these Soviet machines. They had wheels that turned in them, like the German Enigma machine. You ha- if you have an iPhone, you have in your pocket an encryption device that is a quadrillion, 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 quadrillion times more powerful and more resistant to cryptanalysis than any of these 1946-era Soviet cipher machines. Some 1970 and 80 era, Soviet cipher machines, after the fall of the Warsaw Pact, came on the collector's market. They're in private hands. They've been analyzed by academic cryptologists. they published papers about them. NSA refuses to admit these things exist.
0: <laughs> so, so you think there's, there's no merit to... The conservatism about declassification think, about on, of historic documents. I, I
1: think this, the line is drawn so far on the side of absurdity. You have a really long way to go before you get into areas of concern. And, you know, the, the theoretical concern, I suppose, is there's some basic methods, mathematical methods, that are still applicable. But, you know, for Pete's sake, any method that was applicable to the Enigma, you know... You know, is it's not going to be anything much greater what they were doing two years later with the Soviet machines. Just to finish the the question though you had first asked about sources that, so there are, were some documents that have been declassified that refer to some of these Soviet machines by name. Uh, others, um, uh, one of them was Caviar, huh, brilliant cover name for a Russian. <laughs> 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 um, but um, another one then caviar disappears and there's this other name that appears sometimes. And I'm thinking, is that the same machine? Is it not? And, but you know, you end up being like a detective. You see, well, Lieutenant so-and-so has been taken off the caviar problem. And then two months later, Lieutenant so-and-so is back working on Longfellow again. So we say, ah, Longfellow is caviar, but NSA won't admit that. But so, you know, there are things you can do like that. And then if you apply a general knowledge of an understanding of codes and code breaking and computing you can piece together I, I think more of the narrative of what was going on. One of the things I really tried to do in this book was to first of all really say, see how much can be told purely from official declassified sources. It's very problematic of course relying on the investigative journalist approach to reporting on intelligence issues. I recently um, uh, reviewed Max Hastings' new book um, for the Wall Street Journal. It's about secret operations in World War II. And at the beginning he quotes uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who worked for British intelligence during World War II before he became an all-around, I guess, man of letters and TV broadcaster and the BBC. And he said, um, I don't remember the exact quote now, but he said, He said, intelligence work necessarily involves such lying, cheating, and betraying that it has a deleterious effect on the character. And he said, I never met anyone engaged in it professionally whom I would care to trust in any capacity. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the problem is, I mean, people like James Bamford have done groundbreaking work in writing about NSA. But in a sense, all of these juicy tidbits he gets are unverifiable you just don't know. And I know from experience as a reporter in Washington for many years how much of the time when somebody leaks you something it's you know it's got a lot of spin on it and it's someone with an axe to grind.
0: So at the end of the day yeah. how much of this book is written off of declassified publicly accessible information and how much of it is uh, sleuthing through stuff that isn't, for, you know, is, is, is not
1: declassified or is, you know, interviews. Or... 99% was from the so, available documents. So this is... This is but uh, it was, all, I mean, I'm not trying to blow my own horn, but it was a lot of spade work following these yeah. often very tenuous <laughs> clues to try to piece things together. And I think, you know, it does require the patients to actually understand the technical background because a lot of it would be just opaque and meaningless if you haven't spent the time trying to understand the process of decryption and collection and so on. So okay, so let's
0: let's let's work with that. Okay. As at, as you see this sweep of history yeah. which is really mid-war through 1989. Yeah. Um what are the things that you look back on and say <laughs> These are the major successes of NSA. Okay. We'll come to the failures afterwards. But but like we spent X number of hundreds of billions of dollars to have an NSA confronting the Soviet Union. What do we get for
1: it? I think, number one, I have to say, and it's a negative argument, but not, which you can't prove, but I do think it's not an overstatement to say that the biggest thing we got was not all being blown to smithereens in World War III. Well, that's pretty big. Yeah, right. <laughs> so how did we get okay, that? Okay. In 1950, it was fascinating. Here was one outside panel, partially declassified report, looking at NSA's programs. And their chief concern... I mean, it was early 50s was strategic warning. How do we know if the Soviets are about to launch a nuclear attack at that time, it meant launching bombers that would be able to airdrop nuclear weapons on the united States and they concluded the only source was signals intelligence the only source, source of early warning. early warning um, I mean radar and the dew line was going to extend warning to you know x number of hours. But it was clear SAC needed days of warning to effectively mobilize. SAC is Strategic Air Command. Right, our retaliatory force. And they concluded that uh, this was the only source. And indeed, it was. Up until the advent, I think, of real-time photo reconnaissance satellites in the 70s and 80s, SIGINT was the primary, if not the only source of strategic warning. And we know at least from the documentary evidence in a few instances, such as the 1956 Suez Crisis, that NSA's reporting was crucial in diffusing the tension. Because here, the British and the French, in uh, collaboration with Israel, had invaded... the um, uh, the Sinai Peninsula and the Canal Zone, and we're going to, the British and French, were going to try to recapture the Suez Canal and bring it back under British and French international control. Eisenhower was livid about this. Khrushchev was issuing these incredibly bellicose threats. He's going to attack uh, London and Paris with rocket weapons, he said. And NSA was able to report right away, there are zero signs in radio traffic of any Soviet military moves. They're not going to intervene. Of course, I mean, the great um, dilemma in the entire Cold War nuclear standoff was the hair trigger that both sides were on. And it was, it's very easy to see how a crisis could have escalated out of control in the same way the mobilization crisis that led to the outbreak of World War I occurred. Each side fears they're going to be caught flat-footed and mobilizes, puts more of its, uh, its strike force on alert. And then the pressure becomes uh, almost overwhelming to be the first to launch rather than to have to accept a nuclear attack and hope to be able to retaliate afterwards.
0: Okay. So that's a pretty, pretty big yeah, thing. We, absolutely. We, we, we can thank NSA <laughs> yes. for uh, well, either, but, either for not getting blown up or for having more, you know, more confidence when situations yeah, I, I were, not I think, I would say, developing. I would say
1: confidence is really the thing. And, You know, and the interesting point here from, I think, the technical point is that even though we could not read the content of these military messages for the most part, an enormous amount could be learned by direction finding fixes. Where is this radio? We've identified this kind of radar is with this kind of, you know, motorized rifle division. If it shows up somewhere else, we know they've moved and something's (laughs) happening. And there was a very patterned Clear, clearly set of signaling patterns which would occur every time the Soviets launched a bomber off a particular base for support aircraft for you know fueling all of these things, and one of the few people I did interview for this book um, told me a former NSAer who was in Germany and Turkey at an intercept stations at various times in the 60s, he said, and I don't think he was just being, you know, hyperbolic and, and melodramatic. He said, we really felt we were on the parapets watching for the start of World War III and that we were, you know, we were the people who were going to be able to give the warning.
0: Okay, so that's, that's one big
1: thing. Yep. <clears throat> what else? What else? When, when,
0: when, when, when you look and say... You know, what, what did we get for our yep. gazillions of dollars? During
1: the, some specific incidents, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, NSA's reporting clearly provided the crucial evidence at the crucial moment that Soviet ships were turning back or stopping and not challenging Kennedy's blockade of Cuba. Um, during both the Korean War and the Vietnam War, though it took A lot of time for them to relearn the lessons from World War II in both cases, Uh, NSA's system of being able to put together radio intelligence from a variety of sources and get it instantly to U.S. fighter pilots in the air... Uh, I think had enormous influence on the air war, uh, greatly extending, in effect, the range that radar could provide warning of incoming MiGs, say, uh, by listening in on uh, Soviet or Chinese or North Korean air-to-ground communications, messages sent uh, to, from radar stations to fighter control uh, uh, sector stations tracking friendly forces as well as US forces. So this allowed um, almost real-time reporting uh, when enemy fighters were in the air and their location. It had a huge dramatic effect.
0: So there comes a point uh, <clears> when <throat> we actually make progress in in technical cracking of, of you know, major cryptographics, high-level high level cryptographic mm-hmm. systems. You haven't mentioned any of the substance of what we acquire oh, after okay. after we get that Well, um, okay, this is a huge technical achievement okay does it have no intelligence? No no, no no, no. Th-
1: th- there's two things I should have uh, distinguished uh, more clearly. The 1943 program was what became known as Venona. it was an attempt to, a Herculean effort, I should say, from a technical point of view, a tour de force of cryptanalysis to break Soviet diplomatic cables which had been enciphered using one-time pads. Now, one-time pads are unbreakable. However, under wartime pressure, the printing plants in the Soviet Union that produced these one-time pad enciphering sheets cheated and reused some. time <laughs> Yeah. So some of them were used two times, often in different code systems, It was an incredible achievement since most of it, the early work, was done using IBM punch card equipment uh, to aid the analysis. And this, of course, produced um, an enormous amount of evidence, the first real solid evidence and the most detailed evidence of the Soviet uh, spy networks in Western countries, particularly the penetration of the U.S. atomic uh, program as well as the British and Canadian aspects to that. uh, Spies within the ranks of the U.S. government at a high level. And um, the thing though is that the only window that was open to cryptanalysis was about 1943 to 45 or 46 during this brief period when they did reuse some of these one-time pad pages. Afterwards they went back to using these systems exactly correctly and some of these studies done in the reports by outside panels in the 50s keep saying, yep, they're using them all correctly now. The only hope is the direct approach, which is what old-time cryptanalysts used to call second-story cryptanalysis, meaning breaking in and stealing the stuff from an embassy or whatever. So that was a huge intelligence bonanza. That, that really, though, suffered from the dilemma of it's too secret for us to use. And, um, you know, when you're actually then asking the question of what did that do for us, it's hard to say. You know, it's nice to know intellectually what was going on. It certainly provided, I think, more substantive warning than the occasional defector like Guzenko and so on. But, um, you know, it was this one little period.
0: But it did trickle down to the capture of a bunch of...
1: Uh, individuals. Uh, uh, only, only a few, though. And they generally could not be prosecuted because um, uh, Arlington Hall said you cannot use this in a court because that will expose the program.
0: Okay, so, so fast forward 30 <laughs> years. Okay,
1: so 1979, again, just a few little hints here and there. Um, the first Cray supercomputer NSA is the first customer for it, despite what you may read in the official Cray history. It it was NSA. Um, For years, the old-time cryptanalysts in this priesthood that NSA had become by the 50s refused to accept the idea that academic, high-level mathematicians could help them and really tried to resist efforts. Uh, And there were efforts repeatedly in the Eisenhower administration to say, we need a think tank, we need something like Los Alamos, where... The, the best scientists in the world can come, spend a little time, contribute to this problem. Yeah, they don't want to be career NSAers, but you guys are 20 or 30 years behind the times. And the, the reaction always was, including from William Friedman, who at that time was a sort of elder statesman, no, we're the people who understand the problem. There's nothing for these people really to contribute. But they did found, uh, under the Institute for Defense Analyses, a sort of smaller version of the think tank idea at Princeton. And apparently um, it was some of their higher mathematics analysis that helped. And around the time of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, it was referred to in one partially declassified paper I saw from NSA as the high point of NSA's cryptologic success against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. This was one place where an interview helped the Admiral Bobby Inman did talk to me. He was very nice and very gracious. And he was of course evasive about all of this. And he said well, he said you really ought to, um, uh, Bill Perry wrote a very interesting paper when I came in as director. Well it's still classified it turns out. But he said he was very upbeat in his assessment of what could be done, unlike the previous reports. So I finally decided I'll try the old journalist's approach. I just I, I wrote quickly a couple of draft pages from this section of my book. I, I guess I'd already really pretty much written it, but I worked in some stuff from him, and I basically just guessed. I just said, you know, at this point, uh, the advent of the Craig computer and these top-level mathematicians led to this breakthrough, and it's still classified because it probably because it has relevance even for the digital age that followed. So Inman calls back right away. He said, I only have one uh, comment. And it was some very minor thing about something he had done as director. And I tried to work him around to this subject. And he didn't really want to go there. Finally, I said, well, I said, you know, I I wrote this thing. I said, I'm assuming if I was barking up the wrong tree here, you'd tell me. He said, yes, I would. And that's all I'm going to say on the subject. I thought, okay, I guess that's a yes. (laughs) And what we got from it? you know, your guess is as good as mine, but it's pro- we can probably guess pretty well, I mean, that during Afghanistan, I suspect we got a lot of intelligence about what was going on. And, you know, just to finish that point, Inman hinted something else that, you know, he said in that vast country in the Soviet Union, um, and this isn't in the book, so I've been looking for an opportunity to uh, mention this. He said it wasn't in the major cities where mistakes were made in the operation of code machines and so on. And I think also he was pointing to what is a well-known axiom in cryptanalysis, which is under wartime pressure all kinds of mistakes get made. And also the amount of communication just soars. So there's much more opportunity to actually get an uh, an entry into a code system.
0: So one of the most fascinating descriptions in the book, it's it's relatively brief, but to me incredibly powerful and uh, the name of the person who did it is I've lost, but um, is an account of a a Russian-born guy who has native Russian and figures out that the most valuable data set he can collect on uh, Soviet... activity yeah. is actually unencrypted yep. amalgamations of right, very exactly. large quantities of signal. Uh, and that, you know, you can figure out when trains are leaving yep. locations, how much coal there is yep. on a, in a particular <laughs> facility. And that he's able to put together over a long period of time the most detailed yep. portrait that existed yep. of the Soviet economy. Um, and that made me wonder over time, how much of NSA's success mm-hmm. is a success in cryptography yeah. and how much of it is a success in Analysis. in collecting very large volumes yeah. of unprotected material yeah. and analyzing it yeah. really well.
1: Yeah. yeah, it was Jacob Gurin. And when he started doing this, uh, before the sweeping Black Friday, as it was called, code change in '48, he said he was told by his higher-ups If it was important to the Russians, they would have encrypted it. You're wasting your time. We're up to our eyeballs collecting stuff already. You know, what use is this? Well, after uh, this sweeping code change occurred and we couldn't read any of the content of encrypted stuff anymore, the higher-ups said, well, I guess we ought to try what Gurin's doing. It's our only bet. And they were amassing um, as much as a million and a half unenciphered, just cablegrams, I mean a month from the internal Soviet radio telegraph network. And, of course, most of it was incredibly mundane things and even among the things that were relevant they would would seem to most people incredibly mundane. As you say, rail car loadings, um, uh, bank account numbers linked to certain state industries. But at that time, of course, everything about the Soviet economy under Stalin's regime was a state secret. Even the organization of government ministries was a secret. Um, And for years, from 1948 through the 50s, the most important source of information about the Soviet economy, the Soviet atomic program, and again, even early warning indicators of mobilization came from these unencrypted plain language uh, Russian cables that were being uh, intercepted in huge volumes. Now, of course, this did reinforce NSA's you know, gigantism problem of thinking, well, the solution is always just to collect more and that means we need bigger computers and uh, bigger bandwidth on our communication lines and more people and more linguists and, and so on and so on. But it did pay off here. I think the larger sort of, you know, big glacial changes that have occurred from World War II to the end of the Cold War and to this day too is a move from, cryptanalysis to other sources. The other sources are plain language. They're traffic analysis, as I was describing, for direction finding. Uh, they're bugging. I mean, the Russians were, are past masters at planting bugs. They were doing this in the 30s in embassies. And more and more, by the end of the Cold War, you see the emphasis on both sides of, yeah, we're not going to be able to break these codes. The advantage is shifting to code makers over code breakers uh, so what we've got to do is tap in at one end or the other where it's unencrypted um, and I think the other um, well yeah yeah I mean the piecing together stuff from uh, open sources I think is is uh, is a huge part of the story definitely
0: okay so I want to I want to figure out. Try to isolate the special sauce a little bit. Um, What you've described is that you have these periods of Mm -hmm. great cryptographic success. Mm -hmm. But in between them, you have very long stretches where the principal contribution of the agency is A, through what we would now call metadata, right? simply knowing that X... Was communicating with Y at a particular time. Yeah, yeah, you don't yeah, even exactly. know what they said. Exactly. You just know that this missile battery did or didn't get a communication. Right, exactly. Right? So, you, you know, very large volumes of that stuff, uh, piecing together a mosaic out of, out of unprotected material that you right. can capture, and uh, analytic sophistication. Um, now, General Mike Hayden when he wrote, published his mm-hmm. book recently, uh, sat in that chair for one of these interviews. And he said, look, our future is, the reason he supports unregulated encryption uh, is that our future doesn't lie in breaking, yeah. you know, uh, individual encryption. Yeah. It lies in, in metadata. And so we should just kind of let content
1: uh, that's interesting go so to, that, yeah, yeah.
0: you know, f- I think what his phrase was, we should let it, die away gracefully, <laughs> um, and we should really focus yeah. on
1: traffic analysis. Yeah, of course. Of course, that's a council of necessity, too. I, y-
0: right. But, <laughs> but but what I hear you saying in some ways is that it's a council of necessity that's supported to some degree by the history of NSA's oh, successes. Oh, I
1: think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think that's right. I mean, I don't think NSA would have put the effort into traffic analysis and fusion and plain language analysis had it not been necessitated by this 1948 Black Friday change. Um, I should also say, though, I mean, traffic analysis goes back to the very beginnings of radio intelligence. In World War I, it was uh, the British noticed every time the German fleet left uh, the Helgoland Bight, It would be preceded by this barrage of radio messages, which they couldn't read, but they had to tell someone to sweep for mines, and they had to open the booms, and they had to do this and that. And it was a 100% reliable indicator. They couldn't read the content, but they saw whenever they see this station talking to that station for this length of time and this many messages, yep, the Germans are coming.
0: All right. So let's talk about NSA's failures. Yeah. We've got... You've got a, 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 a period of 40 years yeah. that under study. You've identified some really substantial, important 30. successes. Yeah. Um, well, it's, yeah.
1: Yeah, to um, 79, I'm to, saying it's, it was 30 to, years right. of sort of the, so the wilderness ad- of cryptanalysis. You've
0: probably. identified some really great yeah. accomplishments what were the big screw-ups what were the things they tried to do and failed what were the things they thought they'd done and hadn't done
1: yeah you know there's different categories of failures and certainly there were technical failures there were analytic failures there were organizational failures the technical failures we've already really talked about which was that for you know, a good 30 years, they failed at their ch- what everyone understood to be their chief mission of breaking the high-level codes of the the leading adversary of the United States, and I think that also pointed up some real organizational and institutional failures because. Uh, the secrecy, the protecting the mission at all costs, regardless of whether we're accomplishing our results, really, I think, uh, came home to roost for them in the 50s and early 60s, that they were increasingly falling behind uh, developments in information theory and other uh, fields in, in uh, high-level mathematics, which subsequently... Uh, were shown indeed to have a very important consequence for cryptanalysis and signals intelligence in general. There were some really bad um, political and analytic failures. The Gulf of Tonkin, I think, was uh, probably one of the worst, where um, they correctly produced timely reporting on the first attack on American destroyers by North Vietnamese uh, gunboats and they incorrectly uh, confirmed the second attack a couple of days later which is what actually led to U.S. intervention, uh, Johnson ordering retaliatory airstrikes, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution and America's involvement in Vietnam. Now, yeah, anybody can make a mistake but within a couple of days they knew that there had been no second attack and they began losing important documents, covering their tracks, uh, leaving out the evidence of this from subsequent reporting. And um, I think it was one of the real low points uh, in the organization's history. And, you know, it wasn't, I don't think, a conspiratorial, it wasn't like we know the White House wants us to say there really was a second attack, so we'll say it. I think they were genuinely uncertain. They knew there was this intense pressure to get an answer. They gave them the answer. And then they felt, boy, it's going to be such a black eye to us if we admit we were wrong. It's like, uh uh-oh, they've already ordered the airstrikes we're going to say. Uh, We goofed. And um, the, um, you know, We talked about Jacob Gurin's work on analyzing these plain text messages, um, amalgamating a huge database to try to find the connections. He was actually, though, something of an exception. And this is another real failure, institutional and structural failure. Going back to the 1920s, there's been this bizarre uh, bureaucratic um, uh, resolution of how you divvy up responsibility for intelligence analysis and communications intelligence, or signals intelligence. The Army and Navy Intelligence Division said, well, we're the only ones allowed to produce intelligence reports. We have the analysts, so we want the radio interception and code breaking." And the U.S. Army Signal Corps and the Navy Communications Division said, no, we're the experts in radios, so code breaking is an extension of that, so it's ours. And the signals guys always were the better bureaucratic infighters, so they won. But still there had to be some bureaucratic fiction created for why are we dividing up intelligence this way. So the solution was SIGINT, or communications intelligence, or radio intelligence as it was called then, is merely information. The guys who produce this can produce translations, but they can't say what it means. They can't say what its significance is. They can't issue reports. That's the job of the intelligence divisions. Now, in World War II, things worked out pretty well because there were a lot of really smart people who came in from the private sector um, and made ad hoc arrangements to do the analysis, and things worked. But you really see things going off the rails, I think, repeatedly in the 50s and 60s, where CIA continuing this uh, bureaucratic distinction said NSA is not allowed to issue intelligence reports. That's our jobs. They can only produce information about decoded signals. Willy nilly, NSA of course was put in the position of doing analysis. The very act of translating a message is analysis. And
0: the act of including it as worth somebody's attention is an act of analysis. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And it's interesting, the British at Bletchley Park saw this from the start in World War II. They saw a translator has to be an intelligence analyst. There are all these technical terms. You know, a German linguist, you know, isn't going to know offhand what this, you know, Luftwaffe technical term means. It's only by amassing this intimate familiarity and having collateral that you can make sense of a single message. So NSA was put in this role of, you know, perforce, doing analysis but without actually having the authority or I suspect the institutional you know culture, um, if you're not allowed to do analysis you don't train people as analysts. You have to train them as something else. And I think that did lead to significant failures uh, during the Korean War, notably when NSA's predecessor agency did produce good intelligence showing uh, that The Chinese, interestingly, also from plain language uh, cables they read, uh, the Chinese were about to intervene, and MacArthur just, you know, refused to believe it. And a lot of that was because there wasn't any good way of giving intelligence the attention it deserved. In Vietnam, there were failures, interestingly, such as during the Tet Offensive, where the opposite happened, where there was over-reliance on the part of military commanders and the belief that SIGINT was this magic source that could do no wrong. And again, you don't have to take a conspiratorial view, but if you know a four-star general in command of an important U.S. armed force uh, is interested in what's happening in the northern part of the country, you supply him intelligence about what's happening in the north part of the country. And you don't play up anything else showing you know, they're also planning to attack in Saigon and south of the country, which is what happened during the Tet Offensive. And um, uh, there was a real intelligence failure. But, you know, you go back and look at what NSA was actually intercepting and reading. There was enough to provide a good warning. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the failures really were institutional and political. And then finally, I have to say, I mean, I think the worst failure Ethically and politically was during the Nixon administration, when you know they were NSA officials were quite happy to salute and say yes sir, when the White House began asking them to uh, monitor the communications of hundreds of Americans who'd done nothing except annoy Nixon or Kissinger, uh, including Art Buchwald, the humor columnist, Tom Wicker, the New York Times columnist civil rights and anti-war uh, figures, including Muhammad Ali, uh, United States senators. Um, and that was a real low point, too. Um, I, I still think the surveillance of Buckwald was probably just... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, he wasn't as funny as he thought yeah, he was. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I want to, you know, I, I, I had a conversation not too long ago with, uh, let's just say, a former senior human intelligence person. Mm-hmm who uh, in the context of the Snowden discussions was saying, you know, I, I have a certain schadenfreude about this. Because for many many years, yeah, with uh,
1: CIA I, that was had all the egg on its uh, face, uh, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, and what he said was, you know, we would get into these scandals, and the NSA guys, the technical intelligence guys, would just smile, and yeah. they'd be producing intelligence, and we'd be producing scandals, and they'd rub it in our face all the time, and so it's kind of satisfying <laughs> to, boy, yeah. know, <laughs> <laughs> to have the tables turned a little oh, bit. Geez. So my my yeah. question is, you you have a, a remarkable swath of intelligence history here. You don't layer it next to the human intelligence side.
1: Well, I do some, actually. Yeah, one of the things I tried to do, in fact, though, was look at the difference in institutional cultures between CIA and NSA right. and so how I'm, that explains some of the differences. In so I'm actually
0: on. interested in, in in your assessment of the distr- differences in institutional performance over mm. that time. Wow. Um, you know, if, if you had to oh, give one, one back <laughs> and say, we got to do the Cold War over again, and oh, you yeah, can okay. have an NSA or a CIA, but you can't have both. Yeah,
1: I'd pick NSA for sure, and that's not just because I wrote a book about them, um, and it's, I'm certainly, as I, as I hope I've conveyed, I'm not, I don't think I'm an apologist for NSA either, um, or a you know a, a booster. But you know, I don't know how you you put a number on this, but somebody did in the 1960s, who was in a position, and you know, said 80% of our intelligence about the Soviet Union is coming from NSA. In the early Cold War, in particular the CIA's attempts to run human agents was nothing but failures in fact catastrophes
0: yeah so this is the beginning of the book actually yeah, right, right yeah, is, yeah. although it's it's pre it's pre CIA and they're british but the but the but well, it's it, it's a it it's an awful account yeah, of yeah, failure
1: yeah yeah and in fact it was CIA too because you know um uh, John Foster Dulles, who had been there, what, in Switzerland during World War II and running agents into Germ- Nazi Germany. And he thought, yeah, we've got to do the same thing with the uh, with the Soviet bloc. And they kept parachuting these agents in. And we know now literally 100 percent, I mean virtually 100 percent, were immediately captured and either shot or turned around as double agents uh, against the West instantly. And there's this one, I mean, wonderful scene of early confrontation when the U.S. Army uh, uh, um, Chief of Staff sends uh, one of his aides to go confront the uh, CIA station chief in Berlin. And he says, you know, and the Army guy tells the CIA station chief, he says, the only thing you're proving by continuing to drop these agents into Soviet territory is the law of gravity. (laughs) <laughs> um, All right.
0: So I now, th-
1: I just have to say, in fairness, there clearly were some stunning successes CIA later had with recruiting top Soviet military officials, and certainly East Bloc, you know, Polish uh, uh, officials. That I, I think it's fair to say, at least just from what I've read uh, in popular accounts, was a major source of important intelligence.
0: Well, and if you and David Hoffman's book, "The Billion Dollar Spy." make details one of those recruitments in exquisite, mm-hmm, yeah. exquisitely, but also makes clear that it was the first major coup they've had That's in, right. in a very That's long right. time. That's right. Moscow. I mean,
1: they were few and far between. And whereas SIGINT was a steady, was the day-by-day, day, you know, taking the pulse of what's going on, as well as, as we've talked about, providing for many years literally the only serious source of economic, basic economic information of, you know, oil, steel, coal production in the Soviet, chemical production, even where their arms factories were. We didn't know. And this was in the pre-U-2 days. um, And even after, I think, um, the U-2, SIGINT was a, you know, a major source. So yeah, I would definitely have picked NSA over CIA.
0: So when you think about NSA's current mission, post-1989, yep. post-1995 mission. Um, one of the things I really thought about when I was reading this book is, is what they have to do today easier or harder mm-hmm. than what they had to do then? So on the one hand, mm-hmm. you, the adversaries that they're confronting, just not as good. You know, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the Russians, <laughs> you know, I came away with a pretty healthy respect yep. for... A lot of, you know, certainly on the human intelligence side, their, their tradecraft was, you know, remarkable. Um, but everywhere we looked, we had spies, you know, everywhere. Um, you know, and on the other hand, there was really not that many targets, you yeah. know, and we had...
1: Uh, and they were state actors. And yeah. they're
0: big, yeah. and, they're, and mean- they, they have their own clinical pathologies that you can analyze over time and exploit mm-hmm. over time. So now we have, uh, as, as a tradecraft matter, a bunch of dramatically less capable actors, but there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very unpredictable in their behavior, and they all have cell phones that, you know, with WhatsApp on them. And so if you're, if you're NSA, is this a harder environment to yeah. operate? I think it, I, I, I think it has to
1: be a harder environment because the targets aren't as clear. Um, the sophistication of everybody today about the vulnerability of communications is so much greater than it was. You know, for the first, you know, even probably up until the first um, defection scandal that hit NSA, Martin and Mitchell in 61, I guess it was, they really believed, and with good reason, that they could keep secret the very idea there was such a thing as code-breaking, essentially. And NSA. And NSA, yes. Yeah. I mean, look, when I was at U.S. News in the 1990s, or I guess it was the yeah late 80s, I remember one time, we're doing some story, we wanted to get the NSA logo. And you would, NSA actually did have a press office then, but you'd call them up and they'd say, 4583... You say this is the press office, <laughs> 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 public information, <laughs> and um, and so he we said, well, we'd like to. We're running a story about NSA. We'd like to get a, a copy from you of the NSA logo. They said, well, that's for official use only. We can't release it. And you know, I, they still thought they could pretend they didn't exist, and maybe nobody would notice. And um, and I think you know, it, there's enough examples I've seen where you see. The incredible communication security naivete of some of their targets that you realize, yeah, um, they you know got away with that to some extent for a very long time, and that 's clearly not the case anymore and as you say, uh, everyone has these cell phones with encryption applications, and um, you know this was this point that um, these outside scientific experts who once in a while were permitted to review NSA's programs throughout the Cold War kept making. They said, technology is inevitably, ineluctably favoring code makers over code breakers and it's only going to get more so.
0: One last question and then I will uh, wrap this up. One of the most interesting details in this book for somebody like me who 's you know lived in d c for almost my whole life uh, is the portrait of the geography of of the development of this from the boarding schools in, yeah. in northern Virginia to what i didn 't know, which was that my neighborhood was i live in in a u park right along oh, yeah, right yeah. along Nebraska, Nebraska avenue, avenue yeah. is uh, Which what's, what's now you know the combination of M- NBC and and the Department of Homeland Security was sort of the original home of a lot of this right. uh, this stuff. Um, the I, I, I'm 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 curious whether you have ever physically retraced the the geographic descriptions that
1: you've I given. I have. I. Arlington Hall is now the State Department's, I think, language school. And a few years ago, I, I a few years ago, this is part of the aging process, ten years ago I, uh, I called them up and I said, you know, I've written this, or I'm writing this book, can I go v- visit Arlington Hall? And they said fine, they showed me around, I mean, I had to go through all the security there. Uh, the old um, school building, at least they preserved the facade, but almost all of the interior is, is quite different. Uh, The riding stables are gone from the days of the girls' school. Um, And uh, Nebraska Avenue, too, when I was writing Battle of Wits, I asked, can I see that? It's still under the Navy, or at least then it was still the Navy Communication Annex, and they did something to do with Naval Communications there. So I think
0: it's part of the DHS complex now. Is that right now? now? Well, well, you know
1: the chapel there. That was the Navy chapel. That was the chapel of Mount Vernon Girls' School uh, when the Navy seized it in 1942. Um, And, again, um, there were a few things that I could recognize as familiar, but, you know, when the military came in in World War II, you know, they didn't waste any time uh, on uh, preserving historic, uh, beautiful, signif- architecturally significant structures anyway. So a lot changed pretty quickly then. Um, and a lot has changed, you know, quickly in the subsequent years as each new, uh, you know, development came along. And I've been to Fort Meade and seen the old buildings as well as the newer ones there. So yeah, I definitely, that's, that's something I've always tried to do as a historian. I do feel you you know, you, you do get something by seeing the place and walking the ground.
0: Steve Budiansky, thanks so much for joining us. Please join me in thanking him for, for coming. Thank you.
1: For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.